0: You're listening to Jackpod, brought to you by Jack.org, Queens.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Anjana I'm a second year health sciences student, and I'm the intersectionality director of the Queens Jack.org chapter.
2: Hi, guys. My name is Maddie Hopkins. I am a third year life sciences student, and I am an events coordinator
1: for Jack.org Queens this year. Before we start off, we want to give a content warning, as conversations surrounding mental health can be very heavy, and throughout this podcast episode, there is a mention of suicide and other mental illnesses, including anxiety and depression. We've included some resources in the description of this podcast that you can access at any time. Today,
2: we are recording while situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. We encourage you to learn about the lands you are currently situated on and acknowledge the significance for the Indigenous people who lived and continue to live upon it and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relationship to the territory and its other inhabitants today.
1: So in today's podcast, we'll be discussing the relationship between mental health and stress with a focus on post-secondary students and joining us today for this conversation is Dr. Linden. So if Dr. Linden, you could provide like a brief introduction about yourself and your research interests, that would be incredible.
0: Sure. Um, So my name is Brooke Linden and I am a adjunct assistant professor at Queen's University. I'm also a research scientist with the Health Services and Policy Research Institute at Queen's. Um, The majority of my work revolves around post-secondary student stress and sort of the uh, relationship between stressors that students experience, as well as uh, the connection between stress and common mental health outcomes among students like depression and anxiety. Um, Most of my work has revolved around developing the post-secondary student stressors index, which is a a tool I designed hoping that um, institutions could use it to sort of better evaluate the sources of student stress so that they can improve the tailoring of the resources that we're offering to students on campus. Um, other areas that I've, I've worked in and continue to work in around post-secondary mental health include, um, things like program evaluation and, um, generally like psychometrics, which is developing and validating tools designed to improve measurement of, um, of things.
1: That's incredible work. Um, so let's just dive straight into like understanding the intersection between mental health and academic performance. Do you have any thoughts on this you'd like to share?
0: Yeah, um, it's an interesting question, actually, because I think most often people think uh, when they think about sort of the relationship or, or not, maybe not the relationship, but the way that um, the types of people that might struggle with their mental health, we they often sort of go immediately to, well, people that are struggling with their mental health are probably performing poorly. Um, but what the research actually shows, it's not that that's not true, but what the research shows as well is that it's also those that are performing at the highest level. That are struggling the most so um you'll hear people you know refer to type a personalities um it's the really um sort of type a students that are they're big perfectionists that put so much pressure on themselves that they end up sort of um creating a a sort of a new stressor for themselves. And we see that students that are really high performers um, are also struggling with things like depression and anxiety. Um, Anxiety, of course, being the sort of most predominant um, in in that area.
1: That's really interesting. I never actually thought of that because like a lot of the times, like, you know, in every paper, like you said, we always see like there's a decreased academic performance but then now that I think about it like a lot of the people who are extremely like passionate about their studies have so much pressure on themselves whether it's externally or internally from themselves that they actually often experience degraded like mental health and may not even realize it because it's like they think it's part of their academic performance it's not really external to it it's, I've never thought of that. It's really interesting yeah when
0: I was doing my doctoral research, part of it involved focus groups with pof- sorry focus groups with students and um in I held five focus groups and in almost every one of them there was at least one student who mentioned this idea that in order to be a, a quote unquote good student, they had to be miserable. They had to be, Working really, really hard. They had to have no time in their schedule. They had to be sleeping less than five hours a night. And then they they also spoke about there being these sort of strange competitions of, of who was, who was worse off, you know, like, oh, you only slept five hours last night. Oh, I haven't slept in two days. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, the pressure that students put on themselves to perform really well. And then the other thing that I wanted to say, too, is that um, there's also a bit of a challenge with reverse causality in that in that question in terms of sort of the chicken and the egg or the which came first, the poor academic performance or the mental health problem. Do you, Are they performing poorly because they have developed a mental health problem or have they developed a mental health problem because they're consistently performing poorly? And then that's sort of grading on their mental health. Um, so that's sort of another relationship that's a little bit um, difficult to untangle.
2: Yeah, it almost seems like it's kind of like a cyclical, like one kind of builds on the other and then they just continue and feed each other, which is, yeah, it's kind of an interesting relationship that I think we don't always think about. Um, So just kind of building on your thoughts on the intersection between mental health and academic performance, do you think that students are well informed about um, different mental health issues and available services on campus? Um, that's sort of two questions.
0: I think in terms of whether they know about different mental health issues or whether they're well-informed on different mental health issues, I think in the last several years with the advent of things like Bell Let's Talk, um, which aims to reduce stigma, um, I think that the common mental illnesses like depression and anxiety are, are quite relatively well understood. and And probably less stigmatized in the student population than they once were. Um, I think it becomes much more complicated with the more complex and severe mental illnesses. So things like bipolar disorder um, and schizophrenia, those things are definitely still quite stigmatized and less well understood, um, I would say particularly among students. and then the second part of your question, which was about whether the students are sort of aware of the services that are available to them, um, that's an interesting question because it depends on a few different things. One of the things is it depends on what school they're at and what services are being provided and the degree to which the school is Um, making an effort to make students aware of those things. And again, I think in the last several years with things like the Okanagan Charter and um, the creation of the post-secondary student standard from the Mental Health Commission of Canada, there's been a lot of push towards um, improving awareness of what's out there that students can access. So I think that the awareness is probably fairly good. Um, What we're hearing now is that, um, you know, the awareness is up and students are feeling less stigma, they're more aware of what's available to them, but it means that the lines have become much longer and it's taking longer for students to access services. So, um, and then on the flip side of that, There are also lots of times where students are surprised to hear, still surprised to hear about certain things that are available to them, Um, or they know that something exists and they don't know where it is physically located. And that piece, of course, in now in the age of COVID, has become a little bit even more messy. But prior to COVID, when we were all, you know, mostly still on campus, um, one thing that I've heard students complain about too is that you know. I don't know where to go to access this service or this service. And at campuses like Queens, we're quite lucky now that they've built Mitchell Hall or refurbished Mitchell Hall. And we have sort of a centrally located student resource hub for both physical and mental health. But there are other campuses at different institutions across the country where, like Queens used to be, those services are scattered in different buildings on campus. So you can imagine for somebody who's struggling, it's hard enough to sort of find the, the bravery to. To decide I'm going to reach out for help and then now we've added another you know they've they've passed oh, okay. that first major barrier and now we've added another barrier of like okay I have to find the damn place to to physically arrive at it
2: exactly um, yeah which is a whole other battle for sure for sure mm-hmm. so, so like I said
0: we're quite lucky at Queens that it's all quite centrally located and now uh, sort of since COVID there's been a movement towards a lot more um, online options that are available um, but then as this, in the same way that we know, not everybody learns, uh, as well via online learning, it might be that, you know, online mental health services don't work as well, um, or aren't suitable for some people. So that's another kind of layer in there.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's such a complex relationship kind of finding the right service. And, you know, I think that students do have a lot on their plates and it can, it can become, um, overwhelming with, I think everything that is available, um, so just kind of piggybacking on this conversation about services um, for mental health, what factors do you think could impact students' perceptions on barriers to seeking help?
0: Well, I think uh, like what we were just talking about in terms of um, there there's awareness and then there's accessibility and those are sort of two sides of the same coin. So you can know that something is available to you. Um, but it may or may not be accessible to you. And then, of course, it depends on a lot of other structural factors for certain minoritized students who may feel that something is definitely not as accessible to them as it may be to another student. Um, For example, when we were talking about stigma before, I said that I think that um, mental health has sort of become much less stigmatized among student population for most um over sort of the last few years but i think or i know that that's not um necessarily the case for all students so for example we know that certain uh cultural background students with certain cultural backgrounds or certain cultures i suppose um the stigma around mental health issues is still quite high and and mental health issues are still viewed as um sort of a like a personal weakness. And so students belonging to certain ethnicities, for example, experience greater stigma, regardless of how, you know, the sort of um, overall perception of mental illness is at Queens, they may face different barriers from home and from family and um, things like that. Um, And then uh, with respect to accessibility as well, we talked about, um, uh, just briefly, I mentioned the sort of long wait times and things like that. And that's probably the number one complaint that we hear from students is that, again, you know, they've they've put their best foot forward and reached out for help. And then they're told that they can't be seen for a month. Um, and this, of course, doesn't apply to students who are in immediate crisis, but um, students who have nonetheless, you know, as are experiencing a serious anxiety episode who would really like to speak to somebody as soon as they can, um, you know the lines are long and there are only so many counselors and there are only so many hours in the day. Um, and that's sort of an age old problem, uh, obviously a little bit of supply and demand going on there. Um, but that's another aspect of the accessibility thing as well. So we can say we have, you know, we have counseling services available at Queen's, but if it takes you six months to see somebody, then um, the accessibility is quite low there.
1: I think that's definitely true. I- I think like, I like how you mentioned about how minority groups may be slightly differently impacted when it comes Mm -hmm. to accessibility of services. And also like previously, when you talked about how coming from like, just having been complete lockdown in the COVID pandemic, and now coming back to campus for a lot of students like myself, like, we're coming to campus this year, and you don't really know where a lot of the resources are, because you Mm were completely used to like this online platform for everything. And so now you actually have to search for a lot of things. And when you're struggling, openly asking for these resources are is far much like it's another barrier, like you said. So, mm-hmm. like, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say something else that popped into
0: my head with accessibility too is that um, I think that a lot of students are anecdotally. I've heard that a lot of students find it um, uh, rather nerve wracking to um, approach their instructors or professors because like with a request for an extension whether or not it's going through an official um you know accommodations portal um and that's something that i try to be very sensitive to with my students because um well like, largely because of what i what i do in my area of, of research of course but um uh yeah I've, I've had students reach out to me before say that were you know in need of mental health support, very apologetically, like, sorry, I just didn't, I'm not really sure what to do. I'm not really sure who to ask. None of my other instructors have even mentioned mental health. Like, I don't know if this is appropriate. And I've said, like, of course this is appropriate and allow me to provide you with many, you know, point you in the right direction. But, um, I think there's definitely a bit of a disconnect there. And, and obviously from the sort of faculty perspective, I can understand that as well, because, um, At the end of the day, extensions make um, the course logistically more difficult and they make the marking more difficult. And it has a trickle down effect on TAs and professors and administration to the point of like when grades get entered and things like that. So I, I know that it can be frustrating for faculty, but I think some more conversations between those sort of levels in terms of being sensitive to. (laughs) <laughs> to students that are struggling because they're human, and we're human, like we being faculty are human, and we have off days as well. Um, so that's another piece of accessibility, I think, that, that needs to be discussed as well is that students need to feel comfortable enough to not only go forward to mental health service providers on campus, but also to reach out to the sort of people that are immediately accessible to them, which, which in large part is their, um, their instructor.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just just for a minute, I'm interested to know. So with seeking like a three day short, no letter accommodation type of thing, there's typically some type of message that says this can't be um, academic related stress or academic related, um, like an academic related disturbance. It has to be exterior to your academics. And I'm just interested, like, how do you find that um, like, what do you think about having that in place and having kind of students feel that if their stress and their perhaps anxiety or depression or whatever they're experiencing is related to academics, that they're kind of told that that's not a valid reason to have an extension or to, to get, um, an extension through that portal. I didn't know that that was a clause that
1: was it in is. there. Yeah. Um, I never at that.
2: least for, at least for arts and science, sorry, I, I can't mm-hmm. speak for all faculties, but for the arts and science, um. What I will
0: say is that I imagine that because it requires no documentation, I imagine right. that that statement is largely ignored. And I think probably the majority of those requests that are undocumented, unquestioned three-day extension are probably for that exact reason. Um And I personally don't see a problem with, really, I like, to be honest, it's no skin off my back to give somebody an extra three days to work on something because it's not like I was planning on having 229 assignments marked the day they were handed in. You know, so it's just like, it's easier for everybody just to say, of course, you know, take the weekend, whatever. Um, Where it becomes a problem is that if you then get, you know, you give somebody three days on one thing and then that pushes them, their schedule back. So then they need three days on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then you get a deluge of you know students asking for this. One thing that I will share is the course that I'm currently teaching this semester. Um, I've received for an assignment that was due today at noon. I've received requests that were formally, you know, approved through accommodations through extenuating circumstances or whatever. Eight um, percent of my class requested an extension on this assignment. So you know that's a, it's a large class. so That's a sizable portion of students that are experiencing enough distress in one way or another that um they needed a little extra time and i think that sort of emphasizes how serious it is
1: it's very interesting i never it's kind of interesting coming from doing that course and then thinking um about all of that wow so i just want to introduce like a new topic was like there's like an In other countries, there's nationally coordinated efforts to monitor mental health-related data for post-secondary students, Mm -hmm. um, but there's none in Canada. So what significance would a system such as this offer to the overall understanding of post-secondary mental health?
0: Mm -hmm. So we do have some options that are out there, but like you said, none of them, it's not nationally coordinated in that um, it's, A, it's not mandated. So it's not like you know there are 151 post secondary institutions i think in the country and it's not like they're all required to survey their students and submit data to some repository where we can we can then look at you know population based data or of the student population, not the Canadian population. Um, so there's nothing like that that exists. We do have the National College Health Assessment, uh, which is put out by the American College Health Association, but they they do it in Canada as well. Um, and so that has been used. Uh, there have been three iterations, so 2013, 16, and 19. Um, so we are coming up on another um iteration of it, although I don't know what the impact of COVID will be in, in that sort of schedule. But so there are sort of several institutions or at least universities that I'm aware of in Canada that have used that and have now collected that data over those three years, um, which was which was nice because um, myself and some colleagues were able to write a paper on looking at some of the trends and how they've, they've changed over time um, based on that data. But even still, because it was only um, if I remember correctly, I think because it was only about 50 institutions, which is still a big enough number that took part. Um, It's difficult to speak uh, about generalizing that data. It's difficult to say whether that data is representative of what's happening for all students across Canada. Um, You know, it's hard to say whether... There are differences at really big campuses like the University of Toronto versus what's happening at really small campuses like the University of PEI. Um, so if we were to have some sort of nationally coordinated effort, that would allow us to look at that minutia, that that sort of uh, at the different levels of what's happening and whether it's dependent on um, not only size of campus, but other things, like whether it's a commuter campus where everybody lives off campus and drives their car in, like University of Alberta, or uh, a campus campus like Queens, where everybody lives like 20 steps away from the building where they have class um because the different culture right if you're all living on campus and there's a you know there's a student ghetto then you've got you've got that sort of piece of community um whereas commuter campuses we wonder if the sort of social support aspect of having a student community is a little bit less because everybody you know lives in a suburb and they're driving in um so that's something that it would allow us to do and obviously with with any sample with any research, the the larger the sample that we have, the more information we have, the more precise our estimates are. So the better or the more confident we can be in um, the results and the relationships that we find in that data. we do have the Canadian campus well-being survey, which uh, was just released in, uh, I believe, 2020, so hell of a year to release it. Um, and that was created by a group of researchers in British Columbia. Um, so that's sort of the idea behind that survey was to be like a Canadian-made version of the ACHA. The challenge with that now will be for them to get buy-in from the schools that have been using the ACHA for the last, or sorry, the NCHA for the last few years. Because now for schools that have, like Queens that have participated in the NCHA in 2013, 2016, and 2019, they now have trend data. So it's really tempting then to continue on with the one you've already used, because if they switch now to the CCWS, then those um, results won't be comparable. Um, some schools might do both, but One other thing that we really worry about in survey research, which is a big part of what I do, is over surveying your sample. And so, in this case, students, we don't want to overburden students. And then, you know, the more surveys that you get sent, the less likely you are to participate because you're so tired of doing surveys. I
1: think it's like extremely interesting. You mentioned like mental health may differ between commuter campuses and then like campuses Mm -hmm. like Queens, wherever there's like the student ghetto and there's a sense of community there. Like, do you think when everyone was studying at home last year during the COVID pandemic, like that's every like mental health was almost centralized, like not centralized, but like everyone Mm -hmm. had a similar experience by any chance. And like, obviously, we don't know the results of the NCHA study, but Mm -hmm. is that something you can speak on. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for giving me
0: a perfect opportunity to name drop my most recent paper which <laughs> uh, looked at uh, the relationship between re- resiliency during that, uh, the sort of 2020, 2021 academic year, which was our first complete academic year that took place during the pandemic. Um, so I, um, Ran a study that I'll talk about a little bit later, but the data from that study we were able to to take and um, look at some of some stressors that we asked that were sort of specific to COVID nineteen. So things like um, worrying about catching COVID nineteen myself, worried about a family member, or friend um, contracting COVID, um, social isolation, things like that. So those sort of typical stressors we think of when we think about things that were awful during sort of the the prime of COVID. Um, So we looked at the relationship between those stressors and psychological distress as an outcome and um, resiliency as uh, what ended up being an effect modifier. So we took, we split the sample by students who um, on a resiliency scale scored in in a sort of score bracket that we would call low resiliency. And then the second strata was students that scored high resiliency. And what we've seen for years and years and years in the data is that individuals who are high, have higher resiliency will weather stress better. So they will you know end up being able to manage their stress, cope with their stress, and therefore um, you know you would expect to see that relationship go so that if they experienced COVID related stressors, they would be uh, they would experience sort of less of, less of an effect on their psychological distress than those who were low resiliency but what we found in this paper was actually the opposite. So, and it was so opposed to what has been established is that that I thought it was wrong. And I reran the analysis approximately 14 times, sent it to my supervisor and said, this certainly can't be right. And she went, yeah, run it again. And I ran it again and I'm like, no, it's happening. This is a real thing. And uh, she said, wow, I think you found the first, you know, novel finding of your career. And I said, it's terrifying. I hate it. Um, and I was so scared to publish it, thinking it was wrong, and I was going to have to <laughs> run a retraction. But, um, you know, what I ended up doing at the um, suggestion of um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Allison Mahar, who's a prophet at the University of Manitoba, she's fantastic. She said, well, why don't you look into the literature around natural disasters? Because that was sort of the thing that we could think of that would be close enough to a a global disaster. So she said, look at the natural disaster literature and say what they, see what they say about resiliency. And I found a really great paper that broke down resiliency by what they called the three C's. Now I'm going to have to make sure I remember what they are. Um, so one of them was connection, which we can think of as like social support. Um, one of them was coherence, which is the um, sort of the, the drive to know and to understand the situation. Um, and control is the third one. So the ability to control the circumstances around you and, and just in general, you know, be able to manipulate the conditions. So, um, what we would assume is that people who are higher resiliency usually have a pretty good handle on all three of those things. They have strong social p- support networks. Um, they have, you know, some sort of a toolkit of resources available, s- available to them, um, to weather stress usually, whereas people who are low resiliency probably don't have those things normally, or they're missing one of a few, right? Um, what's interesting is that the pandemic was so unprecedented that um, it it really threw all three of those things out of the window, even for people who previously did have them. We were forced to quarantine, to self-isolate, so social support networks, gone, at least you know the face-to-face social support um, component. Um, coherence, the ability to understand something especially at the beginning of the pandemic, we had no idea what was happening. It was, it was really scary. I was in the third trimester of my pregnancy and I didn't know if I'd be like allowed to hold my baby after I had it, her, it. (laughs) So um, there's, there's stuff happening there, of course. And then with control, the control of your circumstances, we were completely, you know, at the mercy of the pandemic in the sense that we're following public health protocols and we're relying on, um, uh, modeling and and our our politicians and our public health um, officials to to tell us what we were allowed to do and where we were allowed to go and who we were allowed to see and how many people we were allowed to see, and all of those things. So all three of those those pieces, we were unable to fulfill those, you know, psychological criteria for resiliency. So um the, what was really interesting is that the effects that we saw were, like I said, people who are higher resilient or students who are higher resiliency experienced greater effects towards their psychological distress than those who were lower resiliency. And we sort of suggested in our discussion that that might be because the people who were low resiliency were already kind of used to not being able to weather stress and having kind of like a crappy time. So <laughs> this was sort of like, okay, well, global pandemic just added to the list. Whereas people who are usually really accustomed to being resilient and being able to manage these things and sort of look into their toolkit and pull them out, they didn't, they were completely at a loss. This was something that was completely unprecedented, completely unexpected, and they didn't have access to those regular tools. And so we saw that they actually found it more jarring than those who were accustomed to being low resilient re, on the sort of low resiliency side and not having those things usually. Um, so it wasn't that people who were high resilient, who, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to say high resiliency, people who had higher resilience, it wasn't that they they were experiencing effects of COVID 19 stress and people who were lower resiliency weren't. It's that people who were higher resiliency were experiencing stronger effects than those who were lower resiliency. That's, which was a really interesting finding. That's
2: such a fascinating finding. And I also find it so interesting that because COVID was so new, like it was just so different from everything that we've previously experienced that you had to turn to natural hazards and natural disasters. Like I think that that's also just kind of shows the how the severity of, of um, the changes that were going on. But so... To continue this conversation, during your introduction, you um, mentioned a tool that you had created, um, that you've created throughout your career, and um, we were hoping that you could kind of just tell us a little bit more about that, because it sounds absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, of course. So um, so it's called the Post-Secondary Student Stressors Index, the PSSI, um, and, and I created it during my doctoral work because mainly I had looked at um, post-secondary student stress and mental health outcomes during my master's research as well. Um, But because of the time constraints of a master's degree, where you usually do your first year's coursework and then your second year is um, doing your research, um, usually, I think, um, most people would do what we call secondary data analysis, where you have a research question, um, but you're analyzing data that's already been collected, um, because the actual collection of data is what takes time. Um, so I decided to just <laughs> throw that right out the window for my poor supervisor at the time. And I said, I think I want to collect data. I think I want to, uh, send a bunch of surveys out to people with, uh, get ready for it, paper and pencil. And, um, I did, I took a week off of work and I surveyed basically every sociology class because that's the department that I was in that I could get my hands on during those sort of five days. And, um, uh, what I had done, though, for that research is, uh, again, due to time, I didn't have time to create my own tool. So I sort of went to the literature and, and found um, some that were out there and then cobbled them together and, and kind of called it a called it a day, called it a scale. Um, when I started my doctoral research, I, I decided I wanted to keep going with post-secondary mental health because of the high prevalence that I saw with my master's research. Now, granted, that was only at one university, but it was something like 70% of the Whoa. students I surveyed met the threshold for an anxiety
1: disorder. Uh, wow, that is
0: scary. Um, yeah, so I said, I think clearly this is an area where where more work needs to be done. And also, you know, at that time it was 2013 and, and people really weren't doing very much in mental health at the post-secondary level. So it was it was fairly novel. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been it's been a nice place to be over the last few years because the um, the area has really exploded, which is really great to see. So I wanted to then, because I found there were so many flaws with existing scales when I was doing that earlier work, I wanted to create my own tool. Um, And then I sort of took it one step further and said, wait, I don't want to create the tool. I want students to make it because that was one of the biggest gaps that we saw uh, or that I saw with the existing scales is it was a lot of researchers sitting down with other researchers or other mental health experts and um, asking them, you know, what should we put on this scale and then use it to use it to, you know, evaluate stress among students. But very uh, seldomly were students actually sort of brought into that conversation. And when they were, it was you know, somebody's introduction to business class of thirty students and they just kinda ask them, What what's what's wrong? Like what's the deal? Um and I wanted to take it a little bit further, obviously, and, and add a little bit more, um, almost like crowdsourcing to it. So I decided that the beginning of my of the work and putting that tool together was going to be um, open-ended surveys and then also focus groups with students, like sort of like this, so we could really sort of dig into some of those issues. And, um, and it was great. So it started out with the, the surveys, which basically was just a couple of open-ended questions that asked students to identify the top five things that caused them stress as a student. And then that turned into, you know, a big, obviously a big long list of um, uh, items or or stressors, which um, I then was sort of able to put into like categories a little bit. And then I used that as the something like an interview guide for the focus group. So I just kind of threw them up on a PowerPoint slide in their respective categories and said, like, let's talk about these things. Is there anything here that you think uh, is missing that hasn't been captured that's really important to you? Is there anything on here that you think maybe like isn't a, isn't as big of a deal or should maybe come off. Um, and so we went through that process and then ultimately it ended up being after we did, you know, all the validation work, it ended up being 46 stressors across five domains. Um, so academics, learning environment, campus culture, wow. interpersonal and personal stressors. Um, So what's really great about the tool is that it covers those five domains. I think really often when people think about post-secondary student stress, they jump automatically to the academics piece, which is an important piece. And it is where I tend to see the highest severity and frequency ratings. Um, But it's not the only area where students experience stress. And I thought that that was a really big gap also in previous instruments. Another thing that my Mm -hmm. instrument does is evaluate stressors by both severity of stress experienced or, or sort of produced by each stressor. Um, and also the frequency of that occurrence. So are, you know, is studying for final exams or writing final exams, something that is stressful only when exams are happening, or is that something that you stress about all year long, for example? Um, another thing that was really interesting was when I had students Ha, testing it out and doing things like you know cognitive interviewing, where I ha- we're having where I was having students read through the items and then talk out loud and walk me through their process of how they were reading the item and then understanding it and then responding to it. Um, that showed some really interesting pieces as well. So, for example, one of the items in the academic realm originally was getting good grades was one of the stressors, um, and it made perfect sense to me because you know working so hard to get good grades that can be really stressful. Um, and I had a few students complete cognitive interviews and they stumbled on that item and they would say, well, you know, getting good grades is like, that's great. That's not stressful. I love getting good grades, but getting a bad grade, that's that's bad. That's really stressful. And I thought, oh, I would never have thought of it that way. So that's sort of a piece of psychometric theory that's really important when we talk about um, putting together Scales or instruments or whatever for measurement. It's really important that the users of those scales are interpreting the items or the questions the way that you intended them to. And so that's what the that piece of the the work allowed me to do. Um, so that item is now getting uh, getting a bad grade. Um, yeah, so the tool came together sort of throughout my PhD work. And then during this past semester, or not semester, sorry, this past year, the 2020-2021 academic year, um, what I wanted to do with the tool, I had sort of validated it and pilot tested it among 500 students at Queen's and it performed well. But what I wanted to do, because most of the work was done amongst Queen's students, and Queen's is a fairly homogenous population, I wanted to make sure that the tool would also work and sort of capture the experiences of students Elsewhere, So at other, other schools, other types of schools, other provinces, things like that. Um, so I sort of ambitiously set out to try to get at least one school from each province in the country on board for this multi-site um, cross-Canada study. And I ended up... Um, even surpassing that goal. So we ended up having 15 post-secondary institutions from across Canada participate. And we did get every province except for Quebec because we unfortunately lost our Quebec participant just due to the COVID year and REB um, processes. Um, And we also got, or not Nunavut, I'm sorry, the Northwest Territories to participate as well. So that was really exciting. Oh, that's incredible. Um, And we ended up, uh, we collected data from them with using my tool and a couple of other survey survey items at three points over the course of the semester. So we evaluated in um, October, January and late March, early April, depending on the school. And it resulted in a big sample size of over 12,000 students. So now we have this you know, wonderful, really rich data set that we can look at. And that's the data set that I used to find that resiliency finding with respect to COVID stressors.
1: I really liked how you talked a lot about like resiliency because like during our BIPOC panel last year, a lot of students actually brought up the fact that you're supposed to be resilient. That's like a thing associated with especially minority groups. A lot of people voice that as long as you're resilient, you can handle anything. But the fact is, after a certain point, an individual can only be so resilient. And if like there's more stressors and more things that like with the COVID pandemic, they don't know how to handle. It's just it's very overwhelming. And so like speaking of student stress, we were wondering, like based on the trends that you observed in your research. Do you believe a mental health crisis is emerging within the Canadian post-secondary student population?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And what's interesting is there was actually a paper published, I believe, in early 2020, very recently um, by a colleague of mine and and some of his uh, students as well. And it was, I think it's actually even titled mental health crisis and uh, question mark. And it looked at um, post-secondary student mental health data and compared it to Canadian population, sort of general population data, and found that um, the rates of mental illnesses were actually comparable between the two. So the data suggests that students aren't faring worse than the general population, (laughs) just as bad. Everyone's, everyone's in it. Um, but uh, it's not that it's you know just because it's it's not just because students aren't doing worse than the general population doesn't mean that it's not an issue, um, which is sort of the the sort of conclusion that that paper comes to like. You know, they, they set out to look at our students actually worse off because this conversation around, um, you know, a mental health crisis has been picking up speed, a mental health crisis among students specifically. Um, and so, you know, yes, the data suggests that, no, they're not worse off than the general population, but it's still an issue. It's still something that needs to be addressed. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my answer And that, you know, I think, I think that there is a crisis regardless of, of which population you belong to, regardless of whether or not you are a student. Um, and I
2: think that we need to do better. Yeah, I think that that's, yeah, very. it's a very interesting conversation. And while we were reading one of your papers, you also mentioned how um, it seems, well, this was actually the paper that was um, discussing your cross-sectional trend analysis of the different NCHA surveys from 2013, 2016, and 2019. Um, and we are gonna kind of dive into that a little mm-hmm. bit now. But um, during mm-hmm. this uh, paper you kind of talked about how it see there seems to be a trend that um levels or the prevalence of mental health is increasing and mental health issues is increasing in post secondary students but you also kind of put into question is that also that we are realizing mental health issues earlier on in life and students are no longer you know waiting until they're in the high stress environment of university to realize that hey you know maybe I am suffering from generalized anxiety disorder or depression or and so I thought that that was just a really interesting way of looking at it because I think as the stigma decreases it's becoming easier to identify in ourselves and in our loved ones like you know what you're kind of displaying some things that are a little worrisome to me why don't we get that checked out and now it's no longer you're in university and have to write five exams and you're like whoa this is too much I'm struggling now before getting into university people are realizing that about themselves and so that could also be contributing to the trends that are seen in the increasing numbers of post-secondary students who identify as having mental health issues and so I just kind of thought that that was a really um, fascinating thing that you mentioned in that paper
0: yeah you you're absolutely right. I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Um, you're absolutely right. And that's something that I was going to say, if you were going to ask me, do you think that the prevalence is increasing? I was going to say, well, it might be, or it might be that people are now more comfortable coming forward. And so we're seeing, you know, uh, in terms of the number of people who are self-reporting mental health issues, we're seeing those numbers go up. But it might be that that's the same amount of people that were always struggling with mental health. It's just that we've made it such that people now feel comfortable coming forward or are better at recognizing changes in their own mental health. Um, So yes, you're absolutely right. The other thing that you said is that it may be that we're recognizing that earlier on in life. And so when people are arriving at post-secondary education, they already have a pre-existing mental health condition. Um, There's evidence to support that. So counselors are seeing more and more students turn up that already have a counselor back home, or they already have a connection to a psychiatrist. Um, One thing that we're not really doing is Identifying those students as they enter university, so that's something that is um, sort of an ongoing conversation. Because you know, what, how do you how do you do that? Do we add like a checkbox onto everyone's university application right. that says like, "Yeah, I have a mental health condition," <laughs> or you know, because so there's great. a privacy thing there, obviously, um, and and students who might feel potential stigma around that as well. Um, so yeah, they're ongoing conversations. But you're absolutely right.
2: And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that with um, kind of figuring out a way to identify students who are entering, because I remember having this discussion when I was applying to Queens. And I remember on the application, there's like an area to um, you can say that you're disabled. And so I remember a lot of my friends and I, who we all have, you know, we discuss our mental health openly. I remember a lot of us were saying, like, should we say that, like, does this classify us as disabled? And like, you know, I personally wouldn't say that my own mental health issues make me less able. But I think that when I was at least filling out the application, I think that was the only area that it was even really possible to mention that, you know, I might have something that um, sets me aside from someone who doesn't have mental health issues, if that if that makes sense. So I think it's fascinating that you kind of bring up that that's an ongoing discussion, because I think it's important for institutions to have a more, you know, uh, refined way of identifying because I'm sure a lot of people who do suffer from mental health issues would never consider them like they would never, you know, choose to say I am disabled just because especially with all the stigma reduction that's taken place, it just doesn't, you know, it's, it's not necessarily doesn't align with how, as society, we discuss um, mental health issues nowadays.
0: And when we talked earlier too about stigma and like different groups might feel different levels of stigma. Um, one other thing to think about is, you know, students going into programs that are really difficult to get into or um, professions where it still remains really stigmatized. So a great example of that is medical school. Um, and one of my focus groups was with med students. And boy, did they have some things to say. And so my best friend is an eMERGE doctor and, um, I'll never forget. And I'll tell anyone who listens to me every chance I get to share this quote that she shared with me, which, um, so my best friend is an incredible mental mental health advocate. And, um, you know, she's been, uh, using pharmacotherapy in combination with, um, cognitive therapy for years now and super open about her mental health. And she's a great like beacon of hope for, I think a lot of her colleagues who she's helped feel sort of more comfortable about like, Oh, this is something that we can talk about, even though we're, medical professionals Um, because for a long time there's been a stigma around you know well nobody wants a depressed doctor to be treating them Um, and she said during her I think it was her clerkship year of medical school she said like half of my med school class my cohort is medicated for anxiety and the other half should be It just, you know, takes me right back to this thing where the really high achieving people are often the people that are struggling with their mental health because of the pressure pressure on them. Medical school is obviously a setting where everything in that regard is amplified.
1: I just wanted to add, like. I think this entire conversation about like the stigma being reduced and how people are willing to come forward also it plays a part into like our understanding of mental health as a whole. Like I came into university thinking it was black or white, but when in fact it was like a spectrum. There's like mental health. It's not simple. It's not like you can be classified with a mental health issue or not. Like all of us have those off days and not. And so when you're trying to figure out whether you're classified as having a mental health issue, like uh, Maddie said in the when you're applying it's very difficult to identify that because people may need resources later on and stuff so i think that's a great point to mention yeah
2: and i just wanted to jump in when when you were uh saying that quote that like reminded me of a memory when i was i think i was in grade 8 and i was in the process of being diagnosed with anxiety and i remember this you know this was in 2013 2012 like and i'm from a small town so there's there like stigma was still very very present in my hometown. And um, I remember my mom and I were doing this like teleconference with the first psychiatrist that I'd ever met. And... um, she was suggesting that maybe I should go on uh, some type of medication to help with my anxiety. And I remember my mom was just like, she, she wasn't against it, but she was just so worried about me. And she was just, Mm -hmm. you know, and the psychiatrist could see the concern in my mom. Like it was just very obvious. And I remember her telling, um, telling my mom, she was like, I'm, I'm in an office right now with 25 other doctors who are all, you know, in, different fields of pediatrics and every single one of us is on, um, a similar type of medication that we're, that I'm offering to your daughter. And I just remember my mom's job. And like, to this day, she still quotes that. And she's like, I, after that doctor, you know, said that to me, you just realize it's, you know, it's crucial for, and, and you can be so well functioning once you find the right, you know, so I just, I just found that that, um, that just kind of reminded me of the quote, and it, you can be so unaware, and it's, it's valid to be concerned, but at the same time, when you realize, you know, how many people are utilizing these resources, it can kind of help, help mm-hmm. with the concern and the fear a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Sometimes I think the fear is because people don't want to know or get a diagnosis, people develop this fear, and have this stigma, because they don't want to discuss it. And I find that's especially true with like, um, various like, um, marginalized groups, like people don't want to have that discussion at all. So that fear develops. And like, once they actually take a, a little bit of time to inform themselves, and maybe have like a candid discussion with professionals, they would have a like different opinion regarding this matter. So it's just like trying to educate yourself is the first step towards doing that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So diving back into the trend analysis of the surveys that we previously talked about throughout this um, conversation, another trend that um, your research found was that a larger proportion of females than males reported above average or tremendous stress, while a larger proportion of male students reported no stress. And so just kind of looking at the demographics, do you believe that this is an accurate representation of post-secondary mental health in the female versus male student population?
0: Yeah, good question. So um, one of the things that we've seen consistently in the data is that um, females, regardless of whether they're students or not, um, report you know higher rates of stress, more severe stress, and higher rates of mental illness in general, specifically anxiety, but also depression. Um, But one thing that we also know from the data is that males are actually more likely to successfully complete a suicide than females. So um, when we talked about stigma, we didn't talk about, you know, differences in sex and and male mental health, men's mental health has been um, something that's also received a lot more attention in recent years, particularly with things like the Movember Foundation um, doing work in that area. Um, So I think as much as Female students and females in general are are feeling a lot more comfortable and a lot less stigma around mental health, feeling a lot more comfortable coming forward and seeking help. Um, we don't see as much of that happening with males. So there still um, is a sort of toxic masculinity piece that's working um underneath the surface there where you know men are supposed to be tough and they're not supposed to cry and all this stuff. Um it's definitely improving, but it's still a challenge. And so um, that's something to consider. I think, so I think a little bit of the disparity that we see between males and females with respect to um, stress severity is probably a bit downplayed um, in that I think, you know, I think we see a little bit of social desirability bias happening there where males probably are feeling a little bit more pressured to say, eh, it's not that bad. I'd call it average, whereas females feel a lot more comfortable just like checking that, checking off that extremely stressful box. Um, but um the one piece where we did see in in that trend analysis that more uh, a larger proportion of male students were reporting no stress compared to female students that was true um but it's not that doesn't mean that like m- more males were more often reporting no stress. We still saw fairly high proportions of males reporting, you know, more than average or tremendous stress uh, on those surveys. Is just like of the group that reported no stress within the past 12 months, more were men than women or more were male than female.
2: Interesting. And I feel like I just think that all these trends really highlight, and Anjana, you can kind of touch on this as well, um, but just really highlight the significance of intersectionality as it pertains to mental health and you know how different social categorizations like race or in this case gender or class can um that apply to an individual group can really kind of dictate um you know what you need and what you're experiencing and how you experience um what you're going through like I think it's just it's just so interesting how um you know different categorizations can affect what you're willing to to talk about and also what um you know what you are actually experiencing.
1: Definitely. I think that's so true. You said it's so great. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would just say like um, coming into university, you think everyone has the exact same experience. And I've heard that so many times throughout my time in, like in university, like, Oh, everyone's going through the same thing. Everyone's experiencing the oh, same thing. And yeah. the fact is that I don't think they are because <laughs> they may have the same academics or the same Um, stresses whether it's academic pressures but like you said in your um, PSSI tool it is very evident that there's other domains that influence someone else's health whether it's personal interpersonal there's so many other factors and Mm -hmm. intersectionality is such a big concept when you're thinking of mental health and um, I didn't even realize how much of a role it played until I came into university and I could see firsthand like how people's um like performance and like how they interacted with people deferred and how their stress is also deferred because of um whether it was familial pressures or like um their own perception of things they may be experiencing the exact same thing but they have different um thinking like thoughts about it and so i think that's extremely yeah. interesting how you not only analyze the trends but you examine it per category and try to understand it deeper
0: yeah, and that's something that's really great about the 2020 2021 study that we did where we have, you know, 12,000 cases to look at. Um what I'm really excited about is now I have the ability because I have the numbers um because we have such high numbers in that study, now I have the ability to look at some of those subgroups where usually when we would do survey research and it's, you know, a cross-sectional one-time point and a relatively small um sort of population that you're able to sample from. So for example, when I did the pilot test and it was only Queen students and I got 500 respondents. So if I wanted to look at international students experiences, for example, and whether those differed from non-international students or domestic students, um, you know, I might only have of those 500, like 25, 30 international students, if I was lucky with this much larger data set out of the 12,000, I believe it was 11 or 12% are international students. So I'm gonna be able to actually do, you know, like an entire, just looking at that subgroup, which is great. Um, And we'll be able to look similarly at, you know, students who identified as non-binary gender. Um, We'll be able to look at um, students who are first-generation students. I think 15% of those um, who filled out the survey for that study, identified as first generation students. So those are students who are the first person in their immediate family to attend post-secondary education. Um, So we'll be able to see how their experiences differ
1: and things like that as well. That's incredible for sure. That's going to have so many amazing implications and like you'll be able to carry out in your work. I'd like to dive into another topic now. Like (laughs) earlier you mentioned how like even though people are coming to realize like they can access certain services in school, whether it's a therapist or a psychologist, there are resources available. The lines are getting extremely long and there's only so many hours in the day or so many therapists uh, like present to provide them these services that they're waiting so long to receive these services. So Mm -hmm. how would you suggest that post-secondary institutions reduce the burden on these services while also promoting student mental health?
0: Yeah, so I'm just, I chuckle because it's like the crux of my work. So um, for a long time, and and to a certain extent, even still, a lot of institutions have been focused on what we call a medical model of treatment, where the focus is on what we call the downstream services. So uh, that's things like treatment and counseling and pharmacotherapy, um, whereas there's been much less focus placed on upstream services. And upstream services are things that sort of aim to intervene prior to the development of a mental illness in the context of mental health, of course. So your upstream stuff is mental health promotion, as you said, um, mental illness prevention, and then sort of Straddling the upstream and downstream um, piece is uh, early detection or early intervention. So, promotion and prevention aim to intervene or or obviously promote mental health um, before somebody is developing symptoms of a mental illness. Early detection or early intervention is designed to get to those people quickly. So, people who are just starting to kind of cross over, just starting to develop symptoms of mental illness, that's what early intervention is designed to sort of target. Um, So, again, increasingly sort of as post-secondary mental health has become um, a greater topic of conversation over the last, I'd say, probably five to 10 years, there's been more conversation around the need to bolster upstream services, so those mental health promotion, mental illness prevention things on campus. Um, because as we've talked about, we have the treatments, we have you know specialists available, but there will never be enough money, enough time, enough people, enough resources there won't ever be enough to make it so that that line goes away or that that wait time goes away because there will always be more people. If we don't target mental health at this end of the spectrum, at the upstream end of the spectrum, by helping people to become more educated, even like you said earlier, Anjana, like understanding your own mental health and recognizing changes in it as being problematic and you know being able to discern between what's a what's a normal kind of having a crappy day or crappy week versus having a continuous really bad time <laughs> over time and recognizing that as a problem and also recognizing that you need to do something to improve it. Um, and at the same time providing resources and education around things that you can do before you get to that sort of treatment stage. Um, that's what will start to alleviate that line at treatment. Because right now what's happening is that students who um, have sort of a low level of clinical need and students who have a high level of clinical needs, so students that have, you know, a diagnosed severe mental health a condition that n- they need in-person treatment or pharmacotherapy or whatever, versus students who are really stressed out because it's exams and maybe they're having some symptoms that they think might be consistent with anxiety, but they're not really sure. All of those people are standing in the same line right now. So what that means is that the people that really need the help are having to wait because people who probably don't need that level of intensity of care, who might be better off with something like like an app that's available or peer support or any of the other services that their institution offers, those people are sort of filling up the line. so it's not I don't want it to sound that I, like I'm encouraging people to not seek help, but rather on the sort of complete flip side of that, what we need to do is bulk up awareness and accessibility, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation is that, um, you know, students need to be aware of what's available to them and they need to know how to access it. And it needs to be accessible to begin with. Right. Um, so it needs to be um, free or at least it needs to be cheap (laughs) and it needs to be promoted. Um, That's how we're going to reduce wait times. That's how we're going to alleviate the lines because like I said, there will never be enough funding um, to go around to have, you know, enough counselors to meet the demand because if we don't do anything at the upstream level, the demand is going to continue to grow. So we need to reduce demand
1: think that's really amazing
2: that's that's so fast and I think um just speaking for our our club little jack.org queens chapter I think that you know in our minds at least we like to see ourselves as a kind of branch of an upstream service that's you know trying to advocate for youth mental health and have these conversations and increase will reduce the stigma and increase the feeling of you know cohesion between mm-hmm. students and um so I guess for a club like ours. I mean, there's tons on campus. And I think that's the one great thing about Queens is there are tons of students who are amazing advocates. Like I am always hearing such great conversations about mental health. And like, there's just a constant, I feel a very, um, like coming from my hometown to Queens, it's like significant, the differences Mm -hmm. in stigma anyways, for, for students at Queens and, you know, students in general, who are advocates for mental health and who do want to kind of be a part of this upstream kind of mm-hmm. um, movement. Do you have any like recommendations or tips for what is kind of the most uh, effective or what could be most helpful in our, in our position? Yeah. So I'll
0: tell you a little bit about um, another initiative of mine. That's sort of been in the works for, um, I guess, just under a year now. Um, so I In sort of everything that we've talked about so far in my work, um, I was sort of sat down and started to think about, okay, what can, you know, is there anything that I can do to fill this gap or to start to sort of promote the upstream services piece of this? How can I, what can I do to sort of support students and not just students at my university, but students everywhere? Um, And so what I landed on was... Um, the creation of a website, which is not live yet, but I'm hoping will be live in January, which is very exciting. Um, And so we've called it the Student Mental Health Network. And it is made up of a ton of incredible student volunteers. Some of them are alumni. They're all different programs, different universities in in the country as well. There's, um, you know, a few med students, um, a few of my friends who are um, physicians, so medical professionals also are providing Um, their expertise and and input into the resources on the website. So it'll all be, um, you know, valid, reliable information. Um, I sort of sat down with this great group of students. We had a couple of focus groups and chatted about it. And um, I asked them, you know, in the same way that I, I did with creating the PSSI, I said, this is something that I would like to facilitate creating, but I'm not a student. You guys are the students or recent grads. So you tell me what would be helpful for you to see. So we sort of in combination from what I've learned from my own research and then what I learned from these students, um, we put something together and it has the idea behind it is that it'll be sort of like a one stop shop of mental health uh, and mental illness information, education, awareness pieces. Um, for post-secondary students across Canada to access. Um, Everything will be, um, like I said, validated and and, uh, will be known to be reliable based on expert input, which is great. All the content will be created by students for students. That's the lens that I like all of my work to be sort of developed under. Um, It has three main pillars. The first one is the learn pillar. So that's where we're gonna have a free mental health module series. So they'll be freely accessible educational modules about different mental health topics. So just in general, like what is mental health? What is mental illness? Are they different? Are they the same thing? Um, There'll be a module on stigma, a module on substance abuse, a module on help seeking and social support and things like that. Um, The uh, second pillar is access, which will be all about, as you can probably guess, accessing services, um, understanding sort of what's available. So we'll have things, everything from, you know, like big crisis lines and, and things like Good to Talk and Kids Help Phone and stuff like that. Those numbers, those resources will be available. Um, but we're also going to have a section that will promote uh, mental health related apps that have been um, sort of um, given a gold star by physicians and have RCT evidence behind them so that we're not just saying like, oh, we found this one on Google Play. It looks great. Try it. Um, there'll be you know apps that we've looked into that we've done the background research so we can say there's evidence to suggest that this can improve um, anxiety or stress. Or whatever um and then my sort of big piece for that section uh will also be which is still i don't know if this will be ready for january i hope so um will be an act active interactive map um that of each sort of post-secondary institution across Canada, it might just start with universities because there are fewer universities than colleges. But the idea is that it'll be a campus map for each university that maps out the location and contact information for all mental health resources that are available on that campus. Because that's a big piece that students seem to say again and again, is like, where is this thing? Where can I go? What is that important resource. Um, yeah. And then we also want to add a filter on that. So there'll be the filter for like, uh the institution provided resources and then also a filter for um student initiatives so if students want to get involved in things like jive.org we can have that those included there as well. Um, Yeah, the final pillar of the website is connect. And so that's to drive connection and social support, which, of course, over the last couple of years has become particularly important. Um, And instead of sort of reinventing the wheel with that one, that's going to be mainly a link out to existing resources. So things like um, Big White Wall or Together All, I think it's now called um, Seven Cups and things like that. So other um, sites that exist or or resources that exist that are designed to sort of develop a uh, social support or camaraderie or sense of community among students particularly for those, you know, commuter campuses like we spoke about earlier, Um, just thinking of ways that we can sort of facilitate and foster connection between students because we know that social support, um, good, strong social support networks is, is a really strong predictor of good mental health. Um, another piece that we are looking at doing for the connect piece is sharing a lived experiences blog, which is another thing in the literature we've seen, um, when people share their lived experience of experience, like almost like what you were saying earlier, Maddie, about your mom hearing from this doctor, like, yeah, I'm in an office of 26 doctors and we all have, we all take similar medication and, and, you know, we're normal people, we're medical professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the sort of power that lived experience can have. So that's something that we're looking at adding as well as sort of a lived experience blog with having um, students write in and say, here's my experience with mental health, um, you know, and and share that and and foster that sense of you're not alone um, through the use of a website that can be accessed anywhere you are anytime.
1: That's going to be extremely valuable. Like even in our general member meetings like a lot of the times there's people who come in and share their living experiences and just every time I've attended I've come away with such a better understanding of the various mental health issues and like how it's seen Mm -hmm. in different people and like also I can resonate often with their stories because it doesn't matter whether you're going through the same exact thing it's just people have similar feelings and emotions so it's incredible to see that you're bringing that to life in a blog so regardless of where they are especially in this pandemic, it's amazing because it's it's like anyone can re- access this resource. Thank you so
2: much. I think that, you know, the way that you answered that question, it's it's going to be helpful having a resource like that for clubs like Jack.org and students to kind of go to and have a central spot. And then we can all, you know, take those reliable resources, which is a huge, um, that's a huge bonus because it can be hard to find Um find resources that are reliable and that we do feel good giving, kind of promoting. So that, that is like such an incredible, incredible resource that you've discussed. And I think this whole conversation in general is just, um, it's been incredibly beneficial for me. And I think I can speak on behalf of all Jack.org. We are so, so grateful that you were able to take the time to have this conversation with us today. And your career and your research is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, words can't do justice. And I I feel so, so privileged to have been able to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much, Dr. Linden, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, thank you so much.